Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Let me tell you about the guest on this episode. Christina Bejan is a professor and theater artist in the Triangle area. She received her graduate training as a Rhodes and Fulbright Scholar at Oxford University. In Washington, D.C., Christina worked at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum for four years and also ran a theater and arts collective called Bucharest Inside the Beltway. She has written numerous plays that have been produced in the U.K., Romania, the U.S., and Vanuatu. Now based in Raleigh, Christina is working on her first book, which is the focus of our conversation. Her book is titled, Intellectuals and the Rise of Fascism in Interwar Romania, The History of the Criterion Association. And her book is based on her PhD dissertation. This spring, Christina is teaching European history at Duke University. Romanian-American, Christina is very active in the local Romanian community. As I mentioned, Christina's book about the Criterion Association in Romania is the foundation of our conversation for this episode. Christina will go into great detail, but for now, you should know that the Criterion Association was a cultural society that was the Romanian equivalent of the Bloomsbury Group. The Criterion Association was a modernist, progressive cultural circle that operated in the early 1930s. They discussed wide-ranging topics such as Gandhi, Greta Garbo, Lenin, and Mussolini. They also had their own series of artistic exhibitions and theater performances in addition to political discussions. Unfortunately, the Criterion Association collapsed due to the rise of fascism in Romania. In the first half of our conversation, Christina Bijan digs into the history and political landscape of Romania leading up to and after World War II. She talks about the conflicting ideologies of the Criterion members, the ways in which the members leveraged their art to promote their political stances, and the subsequent fracturing of the Criterion friendships and artistic contributions. In the second half of our conversation, Christina draws parallels to our contemporary national and global landscape. She discusses her own work as a playwright and theater maker and the impact of communist Romania on her family's trajectory and on her own. I am so grateful to Christina for the education that she provided in this episode, covering topics that I was really unfamiliar with and helping me to think on a much broader scale. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for being here. You are currently working on a book based on your PhD dissertation that you wrote while at Oxford. Would you tell us about it? Absolutely. I will start with the title. It's called Intellectuals and the Rise of Fascism in Interwar Romania, the History of the Criterion Association. I know that's a long title, but that definitely sums up what it's about. Um, It will be published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. It is a biography of a cultural association um, that existed between 1932 to 1935 in Bucharest, Romania. And it was a modernist cultural circle, much like the Bloomsbury Group in the UK. Um, It was a group of friends who had met at university 
And then they went off and pursued graduate study all over the world, from the United States to India to France to Italy to Germany. And when they returned to Romania, they wanted to create a cultural platform in which to explore all the ideas that they learned. Mm. Um, so there were conferences on topics such as Lenin, Mussolini, Krishnamurti, Greta Garbo, Gandhi, literally from all over the world. And because the founder of this organization, his name was Petru Comărnescu, he had gotten his PhD at the University of Southern California in aesthetic philosophy. And when he returned to Romania, he wanted to set up this democratic platform for discussing ideas. So there were two pro and two contra speakers at each conference that they would have. They had conferences to discuss these ideas, but they also had cultural events as well. So the members of Criterion, they, they were from across Bucharest society, from philosophers to novelists, to dancers, to sculptors, to theater practitioners, theater directors, and actors. And they would have cultural manifestations such as dance recitals, staged readings of plays, and artistic exhibitions. And at the end of the, the life of this society, there was a publication as well, which was much like a modernist magazine where they discussed all the ideas that they had explored over the over the course of the three years. So I was Googling about, like you do, about the Criterion Association, and I couldn't find a lot about this. So how did you come across this topic and why did it capture your imagination enough that you decided to write a dissertation and then a book? So I started with the question of I wanted to look at when Romania was a democracy before. So my family lived in Romania during the communist period, and my father escaped in 1969. And then my earliest childhood memory is in 1989, when Romania got its freedom back with the fall of the Berlin Wall, and when Romania became a democracy again. And I had known, I knew from my father telling stories of his parents that Romania before World War II had also been a functioning democracy. And so I was always curious about this time and how could Romania have lapsed into extremism. And so the question that I wanted to explore in graduate school was how Romania could have succumbed to fascism, mm. because Romania was a fascist dictatorship before it was a communist dictatorship. And I knew that key intellectuals that I had studied for fun, honestly, that I had read in college um, out of pleasure, such as Mircea Eliade and Emil Choran. I knew that they were sympathizers with fascism and I want and I wanted to know why. What would they what did they find persuasive and intriguing in an extremist ideology when they were such enlightened individuals in the first place? And so this is not a new question in Romania. This, this has been a subject of debate between Romanian historians and intellectuals since 1989 mm -hmm. when confronting the past. Because, of course, under communism, you couldn't discuss any of these individuals. Eliade's works were banned. Um, all fascists were thrown into prison and, uh, for the most part, were executed or died. So this was a part of Romanian history that had been very silenced. So... There has been debate about the culpability of these intellectuals. And I went when I first went to Romania for research, um, because that was my general question. Mm -hmm. 
And I went to Romania for research and I was working in Petru Comernescu's personal archive and I discovered the Criterion Association. And I, in my reading up to that point, you're right, there's not much about Criterion at all. Mm -hmm. So I I felt like I had hit the goldmine of information. And his personal archive documents everything about the association, even the inner workings, like the financial side, the logistical side, everything is in his personal archive, um, including obviously a list of conferences, what they talked about, um, and his friendships with the other Criterion members. And that's a very important theme throughout the dissertation and book, and that's friendship. Um, And that was very important with Bloomsbury as well. And the importance specifically of male friendship. There was a lot of sexual exploration exploration going on at this time. And Criterion, it collapsed due to the rise of fascism amongst its members, but it also collapsed due to a crisis surrounding homosexuality. There was a dance performance that one of the Criterionists, one of the original Criterionists, dancer Floria Capsali, accused of promoting homosexuality and pederasty, And this was picked up by one of the tabloid publications who started attacking Criterion for being a group of homosexuals. Mm. Of course, they were defending their honor. They're saying that they were not, even though they had these close male friendships. But Petru Komarnescu, the father of Criterion, who I keep mentioning, he actually was either gay or bisexual. He had relationships with both men and women. He had fallen in love with Konstantin Noika, a very famous Romanian philosopher in the communist period. In their younger years, in the 20s, they had an almost love affair that's documented in his personal archive. And then under communism, he had his own, because he collaborated with the regime, he protected himself. Um, he was actually an informer for the Securitate, the secret police, because homosexuals were persecuted very, very severely under the communist regime. So that's there's a chapter devoted to this scandal that I mentioned. It was called the Credenza scandal and also the issue of homosexuality. Hmm. So you mentioned that there were intellectuals and also artists who made up this group. My understanding is part of the reason that this group fell apart was because of the rise of fascism and that different members of the group adopted different ideologies that were in conflict. Yes. Is that correct? That's correct. Could you take us through that part of the falling apart with these ideologies? And then I want to hear a little bit about how the artists use their art to put forward their beliefs, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll start with a brief history of fascism in Romania. It all begins with Corneliu Zelia Codreanu, who is who can be understood as the Romanian version of Hitler, but he actually died. He was executed in 1937 um, and never had the opportunity to meet Hitler. The Romanian fascist who did meet Hitler was General Antonescu. So I will I will rewind and explain how we get there. So they're actually different strands of fascism throughout the interwar period in Romania. But Kodrianu's Legion of the Archangel Michael was the most um, most famous and the most influential. So in 1937, Kodrianu had a vision that the Archangel Michael came to him and told him that he was decreed by God that he was going to be the savior of Romania. So he started the Legion, which 
is known as the Legionary Movement are also the Iron Guard, Mm -hmm. and members are called Legionnaires or Legionaries or Guardists. So there are many different names. (laughs) It started off as a grassroots organization in Yash, which is in the Moldovan province um, in the northeast of the country, Mm -hmm. and it moved to Bucharest to become a national movement in 1933. Um, their first political move was to assassinate the prime minister, Prime Minister Duca, in 1933. And the legionnaires who were culpable for that, the Nicador group, that was their name, uh, were, of course, immediately arrested. <laughs> and so that's when the legionary movement really took its place nationally. And initially, King Carol II, who was the king at the time, he wanted to collaborate with the guard because he was also a fascist. But then he became threatened by their popularity and spent the rest of the 30s trying to silence them. Hmm. In 1937, when they gained 16% of the popular vote in the elections, King Carroll freaked out because that meant that they were the third most popular party in the country. And so he, there were mass arrests and he ultimately um, tried and executed Kodrianu and a group of other, the Nicodor group that I mentioned who had assassinated Prime Minister Duca and another death squad. These were death squads. Mm. So the Legionary Movement believed in um, murdering and also accepting death for their murders as retribution in a sense. So it was a very, very violent movement. So then there, there was a brief government between Goga and Kuza that enacted the anti-Semitic reforms that were just enacted in Germany at the time. Um, and that meaning that Jews couldn't have jobs, etc. And quickly after that, King Carol dissolved the government entirely and created a royal dictatorship, which was fascist. But he was so unpopular, he was overwhelmingly unpopular that by the time Romania joined World War II, he was asked to abdicate. Hmm. So he left for Mexico um, with his, he had a Jewish mistress, which was ironic, um, and she was very unpopular and made him more unpopular. Um, left for Mexico, then eventually settled in Portugal. So then the Legionary Movement took power in an uneasy alliance with General Antonescu, the military officer. They were led by Horia Sima at that time, and slowly Antonescu was taking away the power of the Legionary Movement. And they staged a legionary rebellion where they tried to gain full control of the government. And General Antonescu quashed it and took control of the Romanian state for the rest of World War II. And there's the very famous photograph of him shaking hands with Hitler. Mm. So Romania was a member of the Axis powers until the very, very end of the war when King Michael, who's the son of King Carol, who was 19 at the time, decided to switch sides and save Romania which he did. That was a very, very smart move. It kept the geography of Romania intact, but unfortunately invited the Soviet invasion, which led to the installation of communism in Romania. Mm -hmm. So back to ideology and how could these intellectuals be seduced? There was a feeling amongst this group that Romania was a minor culture, that it was a peripheral country and it wasn't important and they had studied abroad in all of these major cultures, and they wanted to bring Romania to the world stage. And so the Legionary Movement felt like the great cause that could bring regeneration 
and rebirth and renewal Hmm. to a dying degenerate Romania. They're also obsessed with their own masculinity. I mentioned male friendship and the legionary movement was the masculine choice to be a liberal Democrat was the weak feminine choice. They also had a certain will to power. So the, the best way to describe this process is, and it'll sound a little weird at first, rhinocerization. <laughs> so Ionesco, Eugene Ionesco, he was a member of Criterion. He had spent his childhood in France, but came to Romania because his father was Romanian and his parents divorced and was educated in Romania, went to university in Romania and was in this group of friends and a member, a very active member of Criterion. And he remained a liberal Democrat the entire time. And he fled Romania to France um, at the start of the war because he was scared because his mother had Jewish heritage and he was worried about what would happen to him and his wife, Rodica. So then, of course, we know the end of the story. He settles in France. He becomes the father of the theater of the absurd with the bald soprano and rhinoceros and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Um So he wrote Rhinoceros about what was going on with his group of friends in the 1930s and the rise of fascism. And he called this seduction by extremism rhinocerization. And he wrote about it, obviously, in his play Rhinoceros, in his 1959 play, but he also wrote about it in his journals. Um, And so rhinocerization was the seduction to the extreme right, also the extreme left, by friends in a friendship group. Berenger is the protagonist. And he said that rhinocerization was possible. I mentioned the will to power also because of rationalization. So even though they were embracing the irrational, they were using language in such a way that they rationalized their actions. Mm-hmm. So, Many historians of this time period like to call it the period of unreason, and I disagree with that. I think it was a period of extreme rationality because these very educated minds were rationalizing their abhorrent actions. It was also a very mystical movement, a very spiritual movement, and this goes hand in hand with the irrationality as well. It was an orthodox movement. It was a a movement of orthodox Christianity. And um, these philosophers were, especially Eliade, he was advocating, he, he was a huge proponent for the mystical. He had studied in India. He wrote the first book on yoga. He wanted to reject Western forms and embrace Eastern forms, which would be the mystical and the irrational. So each intellectual in this story has his, his or her own reasons for becoming a fascist. And I've mentioned, I've mentioned a few who did or did not become fascists. One who is, I think, the prime example of this. Um, and also she's important because she's the, the most, most prominent woman in the group. Her name is Marietta Sadova. And she was a virulent anti-Semite and fascist. She was one of the first supporters of the Iron Guard. And she testifies in her secret police file that she used Criterion as a platform to recruit members to the Iron Guard. And that she was actually, she was given the job, the responsibility by Codrianu 
to recruit intellectuals to the guard. So they made an, a concerted effort to reach out to intellectuals. And Marietta is the one who had that responsibility. And so, and she succeeded. Um, one by one, people came to the right. And there, there were also prominent communists, such as her husband, Hayek Akhtarian, and Mihail Polyhraniade, who were initially communists, who came around and because the extremes meet on the mm. other side, right? Extre- extremism um, includes both ex- the extreme right and the extreme left. So they came over to the other side and became legionary supporters. And so people started, especially Marietta, they started using Criterion as a platform for their own political activity. And I will say that Petru Komarnescu, who was the founder, the father of Criterion, he was like Ionesco, and he was never, never seduced by the guard. He was an ardent Democrat liberal throughout this period, and Criterion was his dream, and ultimately his dream was shattered. Mm -hmm. Um, Another intellectual that I absolutely have to mention is Mihail Sebastian, who's a very famous Romanian playwright. And he, he is, he was Jewish. And he was also, he was very close to Marietta Sadova and Eliade and everybody I've mentioned so far, they were this tight knit friendship circle. And he would even socialize with Marietta when she'd have her anti-Semitic outbursts. And he would write them in his journal and say, why am I still spending time with these people? Look at what they've become. And he had a real, um, it, w- it was a real tragedy, his friendship with Eliade, the way it deteriorated over time. And he documents that in his journal, his heartache at losing that friendship. Again, I'm going to use the word tragedy and tragic. He is a tragic example of the anti-Semitic reforms of 1937. It meant that his plays couldn't be performed. And so his plays were only performed, the ones that he wrote during this period, after his death, he died in he died in during the communist period. He became a celebrated author under communism because he was never a fascist, so he was in safe territory. He survived the Romanian Holocaust, which claimed three hundred thousand Jews, the, the lives of three hundred thousand Jews. The war just ends, and in a freak accident, he's crossing the street and he's hit by a trolley car. It's just so tragic. That's very sad. Yeah. But that's Mihail Sebastian, whose journal came out in 1996 and really revealed to the world the full extent of anti-Semitism and the Romanian Holocaust, because Holocaust denial is very real in Romania. People were not willing to believe that there were any atrocities whatsoever. It wasn't just Jews who were targeted, obviously the Roma gypsy population. Um, and I do have a number for that. That's 11,000 Roma gypsies who were annihilated in the Romanian Holocaust. So that would be the different ideological strands and friendships during that period. Oh, another another thing that I want to mention about this group and fascism is an important literary trend that started in the 1920s. Initially, it was called Traere, but eventually it was called Experienza. Traere means to live, and Experienza obviously means experience. And it was a form of literature that this group of intellectuals adopted in which they would write novels 
And also they were all keeping diaries, of course, in which they're describing what was happening in their daily lives and their own personal experiences. So there was this sort of will to live and have experiences. And with this will came the desire to have adventure and to document adventures. And so for some, especially Mihail Polyranade, who I mentioned, and another criterionist, Alexandru Christian Tell, who I haven't mentioned yet, but he was one of the major authors of the Criterion publication, they had a will for political adventure, and they were both ultimately um, arrested and executed for their legionary activity. So you can look at adventure in a political sense as well. Hmm. Was there one incident where this group fractured, or did it kind of trail away? There was not one incident. They had a lot of setbacks <laughs> because they were exploring such dangerous ideas such as Lenin and Mussolini. They were shut down by the government. They viewed them as a political threat. So from the very beginning, you could say they were doomed. Mm-hmm. Historians, for the most part, like to blame their disintegration on the the political allegiances that we've spoken about. But Zigu Ornia, who is a very um, esteemed and prominent Romanian historian, blames it on the Credenza scandal um, that I mentioned. And I think it's a combination of the two. So when the symposia and, and performances had ended, when they could no longer organize and mobilize, then they put out the Criterion publication in an effort. But in their in the publication, they say there's no connection with the previous Criterion Association. So they tried to distance themselves with the association with the publication. So that's even in question whether or not that's a continuation of the association, the publication. But the publication happened at the same time as the Credenza scandal when everything was blown apart. Mm-hmm. So I would say that it was a that it disintegrated due to a number of factors. They had a lot working against them. You mentioned her name is Marietta? Yes. What happened to her? She was a theater artist, right? Yes. Okay. Well, what's her story? She was a theater director and actress, very prominent. And her husband, Haigak Terian, who was Armenian-Romanian. So I also want to mention about this group that it was a very diverse group. Greek, Armenian, Jewish, Romanian, from all over the country. So it was an eclectic circle of friends. She had, Haik was her second husband. She had been married to Jan Marin Sadovianu before. And she, she wasn't just in plays. She was also in Romanian movies. In 1940, when I mentioned um, the legionary state took form uh, during the Legionary Rebellion. That was during that period of time, Haig Akhtarian, her husband, was the director of the National Theater. Mm. And she used the National Theater as a place to organize protests. And they were already discriminating against Jewish artists within the theater. So they had already done that purge. So she was seen, and I read this in a secret police file, she was seen on the balcony of the theater wearing a green shirt because the legionary movement, they were known as the green shirts, much like the black shirts Mm -hmm. in Mussolini's Italy. 
and she was seen on the balcony wearing a green shirt, carrying a revolver during during the Legionary Rebellion. So they were using the theater space as an actual place of protest and violence. This was the question that I wanted to get to because you asked how their plays are connected to the Legionary Movement. So I already mentioned that Miha, and I'll return to Marietta in a second. I already mentioned that Sebastian, he was not able to have his plays performed because of anti-Semitic reforms. Um, Eliade wrote a pro-Iron Guard play called Iphigenia about the Greek myth um, that was performed at the National Theater after the Legionary Rebellion. And Sebastian remarks that in his journal that he can't believe that it's allowed to be performed because they lost the Legionary Rebellion. Why would a pro-Iron Guard piece be allowed to be performed? So that's an example of literature that really mirrors what was going on in the political. Mm-hmm. Marietta Sudova, in terms of what happened to her, it's another tragedy, but it's it's also a story of resilience. Um Hayagakterian was arrested during the Legionary Rebellion, her husband, and was imprisoned. Marietta Sadova reached out to King Michael and asked if there could be a pardon for him to be released from prison, and he agreed. And so he was ultimately sent to the Eastern Front, to the Kuban, where he, of course, died. So she lost the love of her life. She never remarried. During the communist period, she practiced... a a delicate balance of collaborating with the regime, but also was involved in subversive activity promoting the Iron Guard. So she had a very active life as a theater director and actress still. And in 1956, there was enough of a thaw in diplomatic relations in Europe, because that was when that was the year of Hungary's revolt uh, against communism that was, of course, quashed as well. But there was a diplomatic thaw. So Romania sent a theater troupe from the National Theater to perform two plays in Paris. And Marietta Sudova traveled with that troupe representing the National Theater. And the two plays were Oscrisoire Perduta, um, by Jan Karajale, who's Romania's most famous playwright, and Ultima Ora by Mihail Sebastian, who's the Jewish playwright. Oh, wow. Yep. So his plays became some of the most popular plays performed in Romania till this date. Huh. And so they brought the two plays to Paris, and Marietta took the opportunity to be involved in some subversive Iron Guardist activity and brought literature from Romania to pass off to Eliade and other guardists living in Paris. And they gave her books to take back to Romania to share amongst iron guardists in Romania. And so she, and and they had discussions about, you know, the future of the guard and what's happened to everybody and et cetera. So then when she gets back to Romania, of course, she is caught Mm. and she's put on trial for treason, which is known as the Noika Pilat trial. And she was going to be sentenced to decades in prison, but was released after a few years and eventually became a professor at the National Theater, uh, National University, forgive me, of theater and film. And that's where she ended her career. So she has this incredible, obviously promoting fascism, collaborating with communism, still promoting fascism, but always rising on top professionally. (laughs) Yeah, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Um, 
And another thing that I, I always point out when it comes to she, of course, people like to demonize Marietta Sadova. She was an anti-Semite. She was a fascist. She was not, how could she be a nice person? But she had this altruistic side to her and she would give money to, she would be seen giving money to friends of hers throughout Bucharest, like Gardas supporters. Eliade in his journal, in his journal of, of the 70s era, um, writes about how she has this kind heart and altruism. So a very, very enigmatic character. Yes, <laughs> yes. This seems like a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you have a sense of what kind of effect the collapse of the Criterion Group had on the artistic climate of Romania in the years during after the war? Absolutely. I mean, it it was the rise of censorship in Romania, and a very famous example of that is is in poetry. So, well, but this extended to literature and across the board, um, theater. But sex, as we know it, was considered taboo topic. So because of the rise of Orthodox Christianity, so that was being um, eliminated from literary contributions. Eliade, because of that reason, was was censored. So... Censorship was was just increasing as the 30s went on and Carol, you know, gained King Carol gained more and more control. During the war, Romania, I would I would argue was essentially silent creatively. And during the communist period, there was a very, very, very hard grasp on the creative output and it was very, well, it was censored in its own way. Um, communism was, I mean, it was a very harsh regime in Romania um, under Dej and even harsher under Ceausescu. And there, so the literature was, the socialist realist trend did exist in Romania. This is, of course, is coming out of Russia. You know, you had to write praising the communist state. So there was a balance in my next project. And I was, and I was going to talk about this maybe a little bit later, but in my next book project, I want to write about the national theater of Romania under, under totalitarianism. So starting with the story of fascism and then carrying on through the communist period. And when we look at the repertoire of the, of the national theater, um, you'll see the theater walks a fine line between collaborating with the regime and also pursuing more free selections, um, more creative. So there's a space for creativity within the plays that they select, but also they're selecting plays that would be in lockstep with the regime itself. And the theater during communism was immensely popular. It was like going to the cinema and that kind of spirit of going to plays still exists today. And if you walk down the streets of Bucharest, there'll be like crowds of people standing in front of theaters going Mm. in for the night. Amazing. Yeah. I'm very excited about your second book, too. That seems like a really rich topic. So a group like this probably would not form in the same way in the contemporary United States um, because of the way that the news cycle works and social media and our relationship to theater and art and all of that sort of thing. But I'm very interested if you see any parallels or anything based on your research that you could apply to today. Absolutely. The rise of the extreme right globally. I mean, we just had the elections in Brazil. 
I feel like I don't need to say this, but of course, in our own country and the recent anti-Semitic attack on the synagogue um, and gun violence across the board. So in Charlottesville, absolutely. I mean, we, we are at risk of this exact same phenomenon happening in this, in our own country and of people justifying it by rationalizing, like I said, with rhinocerization and Ionesco. So we're at risk of the extreme right. I know we just had the blue wave in Congress, but I still, I still don't think we're in the safe zone. There's lack of respect for the arts. Um, this is the second year in the row that Trump hasn't gone to the Kennedy Center Awards. There's also the rise of authoritarianism globally. I mean, and obvious examples include China and Russia. We have the extreme right with Modi in India and Rajapaksa coming back to power in Sri Lanka. And of course, violence across Africa. I just produced um, Eclipsed by Denai Guerrera for the Women's Theater Festival, which depicted the second civil war in Liberia. So that's been a continent that's been marred by conflict and violence um, and authoritarianism. So I would say that those are the parallels I see with our own time. And the final thing that I'll say is that ideas are dangerous. And um, that extends to social media. So there, there is definitely a connection between the criterion era and our own in this respect, because they were writing, uh, they were writing news articles and journal articles that were called feuilletons, which are like really, really short thought pieces that would go out in publications on a daily basis. And this is very similar, of course, to the way social media works right. um, in terms of spreading ideas quickly. I, I just saw this morning that um, Zuckerberg had a meeting with Maron in France about cracking down on hate speech on with Facebook in France. And I think that's incredibly important. And I think we need to do that here in the United States. Because as I said, ideas are dangerous. Mm. And social media is the way that people are communicating these days. Do you think that artists can counterbalance that by spreading different ideas? Or is there another way to change the balance? I think that... In the United States, there's a different relationship with theater than in Europe. As I said earlier, you know, you walk down the street in Bucharest and there are lines outside the theater of people waiting to get in. Theater in the United States, for the most part, is perceived as a pretty elite and as an art of privilege. And of course, there are outreach efforts. Theaters are, you know, busing in students from local communities, um, having educational programming, you know, theaters are making an effort to uh, be inclusive. Mm -hmm. But I would say that we need even more of that. We need more of, we need more advocacy. We need more outreach. Um, we need more plays that are about real social issues. That in and of itself, if we have, and that's a criterion phenomenon where if you provide a platform for dialogue. So if we have more platforms for dialogue in the artistic world, then that itself can be a contribution. I would like to pivot a little bit and talk about your work in the theater. You, as we've mentioned, are a, an historian and an academic, and, and you're also a playwright and an actor and director and many things related to making theater. 
But I'm really curious about how your work as a historian and an academic has an impact on your playwriting and vice versa. Do they touch each other? They definitely touch each other. Um, I have two that immediately come to mind, two plays. The first play that I ever wrote um, was called Buchenwald, and it's about a a, um, Nazi SS officer trapped inside his own concentration camp after the Soviet occupation. Of course, little did I know that I would go on and work at the Holocaust Museum for four years. Mm. <laughs> but clearly, it's been something that I've been interested in, uh, you know, ever since I was 20 years old. But even before that, because my favorite subject in school was was history, mm. of course. <laughs> so that immediately comes to mind. And another one is my Sri Lanka play. It's called Colombo Calling, a play from Sri Lanka. And we just had a live reading at Emerge in May. And it's also been performed as a live reading in Bucharest, starring Maya Morgenstern, who's a very prominent actress in Romania. And also at the, it was performed as a reading at the Kennedy Center as part of the Page to Stage Festival. So it's about a country that is being torn apart by a brutal civil war. And so it's about extremism in its own right the force of the LTTE, which is the Tamil terrorist organization fighting for independence from uh, the Sinhalese government. Um, And it's about a Tamil family and how they're dealing with the civil war. And also it's immediately takes place immediately after the tsunami. So there are all these international organizations on the island. And so how this family is dealing with both the war, the presence of the international organizations, and also a rift in their own family because one of the cousins comes back from London and there's this confrontation within um, regarding diaspora Mm. and what does it mean to be a member of the diaspora. And I know that I wrote that play out of my own feelings being a member of the Romanian diaspora and going back to Romania and what does that mean and having my family in Romania and my family here. And um, so I would say those are two examples of um, of the impact. Mm-hmm. I read in an interview, might have been ar- around the Rhodes Scholarship, that you, if you could have a superpower, you would choose time travel. And I'm curious about whether you use playwriting as a way to feel that where you are going to a place that does not exist, but essentially you're creating your own time travel machine. At the moment, I want to time travel back to 19th century Imperial Africa, (laughs) um, because that's what I just taught in my class. Yeah, we had an interesting discussion. This is related to Rhodes, and she mentioned the Rhodes website and the question. Um, I had a discussion about in Oxford in 2015, there was a movement to take down Cecil Rhodes' statue. And this was uh, a movement led by Rhodes scholars. And I was part of the global fight to take down the statue. And um, and that was all happening via social media, speaking of the importance mm-hmm. of social media. And um, that was in response to removing Cecil Rhodes' statue at University of Cape Town in South Africa, which they su- the students succeeded in doing. So the way... The way we talked about this in class uh, at Wake Tech was, um, you know, he's guilty of crimes against humanity, but he was also a a philanthropist. So 
um, you know, what are your thoughts? And of course, I disclosed to them that I'm a Rhodes Scholar, but I fought to take the statue down. And I had one student raise her hand and say, Professor Bijan, why did you take the scholarship in the first place? <laughs> what did you say? I said, it's a very prestigious scholarship. And there's a lot of ignorance. And very few people know about the true history of Cecil Rhodes, which is why I make the effort to educate and tell people. And there's been a huge movement on behalf of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford to make amends with the history of South Africa and Zimbabwe. Mm. Um, there's there's the development of the Mandela Rhodes Foundation, and there's the Mandela Rhodes Trust, and they work together to create scholarships for South African students. I think that the Rhodes Trust has made a lot of progress over the years and is going in a very, very positive direction. Although I know this is really an aside, but I will criticize them for giving scholarships to Chinese students because I think that that is kowtowing to the most brutal uh, totalitarian regime in the world. Mm. It seems like this is something that you keep coming back to, these times of extremism within countries. Why is this something that you are so interested in kind of teasing apart and also telling other people about? It's very clear to me. It's my own history with totalitarianism and what my family has suffered. So under communism, both of my Romanian grandparents were imprisoned multiple times. And my father very well, and I should mention they were because they weren't communists. So they refused to join to actually sympathize or promote the regime. And because of their independence, that's why they were suspect. Mm. My father succeeded in getting out because he won a state scholarship during the thaw of relations between the US and Romania. This happened when Nixon visited China. And there was this very brief window of um, the US being open to communist countries, very brief. And my father won a state scholarship to study at MIT and never looked back. It was incredibly difficult for him to stay here because he had to sign a document saying he was a communist as he left Bucharest Autopen Airport, because everybody had to do that. If you left the country, you had to promise that you would return. Um, and because he had no intention of returning. So e even the fight to stay in the United States was very difficult for my parents. And they were in immigration courts for years, proving that he wasn't, in fact, a communist because, of course, there was a lot of anti-communist sentiment, as we know, yes. <laughs> in the United States. And so, and knowing how much my family suffered under communism, my, I mentioned my most vivid childhood memory um, is the Romanian Revolution. I also remember preparing care packages for my, my family in Galatz. That's the name of my father's hometown. And this was throughout the 80s. Um, and we would regularly, my, my mom would set us up, um, on the first floor of our house with big cardboard boxes and we would line up the bars of soap and the used t-shirts and the cartons and cartons of cigarettes and send these packages to Romania, like, like an assembly line. Mm -hmm. And so I know they were living in poverty. So it's definitely my own family history that makes me so sensitive when it comes to totalitarianism and such an advocate for freedom and for democracy. There's a lot of criticism right now in Romania with the government because the social democrats are in power and they're the former communists. And 
Um, we have a great president. He's the first minority president in Romania. He's German. So <laughs> when we had Obama, that's when Johannes was elected. And I was like, yes, both my countries. <laughs> but I would say that, you know, there's no comparison with, and there, are, of course, there's nostalgia for communism with the extreme poor in Romania who did comparatively have it slightly better under communism when it, quote unquote, everything was equal. But the Romania that I see today is a flourishing, exciting, um, progressive, Western-looking country. Mm. What is next for you? Is After the book, is there the next book? Or do you have other things that are kind of in the queue? Well, my first artistic dream is I'd like to see a full-stage production of Colombo Calling. And I've talked to Seema Kudreja about that. Um, and we've talked about maybe next year. Um, of course, I have to finish the book. <laughs> but next year, maybe next summer, depending on people's schedules. So that's the next creative project. Um, I should mention, because it's been a very important part of my life, that I also write poetry and I was on the spoken word scene in Washington, D.C. I would present regularly at Busboys and Poets, and then I got invited to be part of an underground ring. And I write in Romanian and English. And I'm, I, so I do spoken word in Raleigh now, and that's kind of like an ongoing outlet for me. Mm-hmm. I have been collaborating on a play with a, a, an American journalist who's worked in Egypt about Tahrir Square and um, the revolution there. But that's very much in progress. And, you know, we talk occasionally and work on it, but it's, I don't imagine that happening anytime soon. And of course, the book, um, I've already, the next book, I've already presented, because I was a fellow a couple of times at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and I was invited to speak on a panel that was broadcast on C-SPAN about the National Theater Book Project. Hmm. Um, so I feel like that's already like in the works. So that'll probably be the next thing I work on. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we close out? Well, I, I would like to say that I feel very fortunate. I haven't had to sacrifice either academia or arts in my life. I've always been able to do both. Hmm. And my father always told me that I had to choose <laughs> and I haven't had to choose. Well, you've chosen both. Yeah, I've chosen <laughs> Exactly. I've chosen both. So um, I feel very fortunate, and I'm very grateful for the Raleigh community for embracing me and the Triangle community, of course, coming back to Durham. So I look forward to what's ahead. Great. Thank you so much for this conversation, and we look forward to seeing your book when it's completed. Thanks so much. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. Please support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. For more information, go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. All of this information is in the show notes. Artist Soapbox music is composed by Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out. <laughs>